time to, that you've given us. We ask you to guide and lead us as we open your word and, and search it. And let your spirit teach us in today's lesson. In Jesus' name, amen. Hosea chapter 5, start verse 1. Hear you this, O priests, and hearken you, O house of Israel, and give ear, O house of the king, for judgment is toward you, because you have been a snare unto Mizbah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I have been a rebuker of them all. I know Ephraim and Israel is hid not from me, and now, O Ephraim, you commit and Israel is defiled. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God, for their spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord. And the pride of Israel doth testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. They shall urge to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He hath withdrawn from them. They that dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children, now shall a month devour them with their portion. So we're going to stop there. Here is Hosea continuing his statements against the northern kingdom. Now remember we've said the northern kingdom is in a period of prosperity. They're not paying any attention to him because they think everything is good. You know, if God was against us, then everything would be bad. And Hosea is saying it's going to be bad. But they're going, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, we've been living this way for a long time and nothing has happened. Very much the words we hear in our country, we've been this, going this way for a long time. Nothing bad has happened and we're seeing things start to happen. Israel was going to see things happen and was already seeing things for those who had their eyes open to see. So he starts out with quite an interesting thing. Hear, hear you this, you priests, the people, and the, and the princes. So he's saying your religious leaders, the people in general, and the government. Listen to what God is saying. So he's rebuking the religious leaders as well as the people and the government. Very much the way things are in our country again. We have so many churches that claim to be Christians that aren't teaching God's word, don't believe God's word, and are following the ways of the world, that this statement could be just as aimed at us just as much. Hear, O oh, religious leaders, hear people, hear the government. And he is calling everybody, listen to what God is saying. And it's so easy when everything seems to be doing okay to ignore God. Well, God, you know, look at this. Everybody's making money. The stock market's going up. The banks are, the banks are doing well. Everybody's got the, the property they want. They've got their nine cars in their garage and their food on the table. And, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong with you? What, you know, why, are your, why are your leaders all saying, look out for the judgment? And this is very interesting because we see it all through the scriptures. Everything looks to be going good. People seem to be getting blessed. And then God says, enough. You're not coming to me. I'm going to bring judgment. And we see it all through history. All through history, we see these nations that turn away from God and actively do things that are against his will. And God judges them. And this is Hosea's you know, call. 
listen. Listen, everybody. Uh, and he goes, and the revolters are profound to make a slaughter, though I have been the rebuker of them all. The revolters, the, the rebels, the, the rebel rousers, those who are causing trouble, uh, causing riots. <laughs> riots in the street type people. Uh, just what we are experiencing in our country and what much of the world has experienced. Riots in the street. And the sad thing is these things are still going on today even though they're not being reported in the news as much. We still have groups revolting and rioting. It's kind of interesting though that the, the police are cracking down on them a lot faster than they were. Uh, so this was all politically motivated in the past and the police are now trying to stop them. And what they say is we've learned our lesson. We can't let them take over our streets. Uh, but all of this stuff is going in and he says, their revolters are profound, deep in their slaughter. And this is very interesting. How many people justify their violence to get their point across? Uh, and this is the sad thing. God says we're to be open, we're to debate, we can, we can, can argue points. But he never says go out and kill other people that disagree with you. And yet that is what happens. And sometimes it's even done in the name of Jesus. You know, uh, they will attack abortion clinics. They will attack the, the leaders and they go, this is all done in Jesus' name. Now that's not in Jesus' name. I don't care what they say. God has never said, go out and attack these people. This is what Hitler did. And this is why the Jews hate, hate Christians up until recent years. Because Hitler claimed to be doing God's will as he attacked and murdered them. And we see this, he's going, the revolters are out there, they're being very deep in their slaughter, and they're justifying themselves. And this is what happens so often. People get evil, and they give you all kinds of reasons why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, well, if they just were fair to me, I wouldn't have to force my, my views on them. If they would have just listened, I wouldn't have to kill 300 people to make my point. Yeah, and this is what ends up happening. And he's saying the revolters are like this. He, but then he goes on to say, but uh, though I have been the rebuker of them all, I have been the discipliner of all. And this is God speaking. God's discipline will fall on everybody that's not doing things the way it's supposed to be done. Whether they claim to be his or they claim not to be his. And this is the beauty. There will be people who says, well, I don't believe in God. Not believing in God does not make him any less God. All right? Not believing his word does not make it any less his word. And this is the beauty of all of this. You know, people go, well, that's just man's book. Well, it can't be man's book because there's no contradictions in it. And it's, it's future with, with perfect accuracy all through it and as we're entering into it. How do we know we're in the end times? Because we can look at hundreds of predictions of what the end times are going to look like and we are fulfilling them. We know that Jesus fulfilled every prediction of his birth to the letter and the odds of that are astronomical. Nobody, no betting man would ever have said that there would be one person that met all of those things and yet the Bible predicted it. The Bible is predicting just what we're walking into. You know, when the Bible was written there was no way that people could even conceive of not being able to purchase items without the government's permission. Now, governments have tried it all along, but people could still barter, could still make things happen. 
we're looking at a world where this may be literally true that you cannot get by without the government's permission to spend. And people go, well, we'll still barter. Well, I'm sure there will be a handful of people trying to barter. But if you can't buy the products in the first place, there won't be anything to barter. And this is going to be a problem. You know, I've got many of my friends saying, well, ammunition is going to be the, the, the bartering tool. If you have ammunition, you'll be able to get anything or take anything. Well, the take anything, I'll agree with. Yeah. <laughs> All right? Except if they have more ammunition than you do. <laughs> All right? But I don't see it being that way because the Revelation tells us that a bag of gold will buy a loaf of bread. So no matter what you have, it's not going to be worth much. And this is why I kind of laugh. All these people say, buy gold, stock up on gold. Gold has never gone, ne gold has never lost its value. Well, that is true until God steps in. And God will step in and what's going to be valuable? Food. And food will be so valuable that the gold is basically worthless in comparison. Uh, and we're seeing that whole phenomenon starting to, to roll in. The government keeps telling us there's no inflation. How did they do that? Well, they took food out of the inflation factor. They took utilities out of the inflation factor and put a bunch of stuff in it that stays the same. And they took everything that's volatile out so that they could say, look, we have no inflation. And yet, if you put the original fa factors in the inflation calculation, we have had tremendous extreme inflation. And we all know it. Anybody who works a living and hasn't had a pay raise in five, ten years knows that they buy less stuff than they used to be able to buy with their money. I do. You know, I go and spend the same amount at the grocery store and come back with a lot less than I used to. And then not only that, but your one pound bag of sugar is now 12 ounces of sugar. You know, most of your cans, which were 16 ounces, are now 14 ounces. Everything is smaller. For the same price that you used to pay for the full, full amount. Which means inflation. Even though they don't mark it down as inflation, they go, well, you can still buy a can of, let's say, coffee. Now, you can still buy your one pound, your, 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 your coffee for the same price. Yeah, but I'm getting less coffee. I can still buy my sugar for the same price, but I'm getting less sugar. So all of this, during prosperity, things happen. And God starts bringing in, and he says, and then people deny. They deny the changes. They deny the problems. The government. The government's redefined it over the years because all their, all their legislation is tied to inflation. If, they retire, if the retirees that on Social Security get paid more on the cost of living raise, so they have to make sure that there's no inflation. And if they want to keep their jobs, they want to make sure there's no inflation. But you said it was food. Food, utilities. Uh, I don't remember if gasoline, I think gasoline was included. All the things that went up and down all the time were taken out. And how long has this been going on? Oh, three or four, about three decades now. It's been a long time. I think the last one that really had inflation hit during his reign was Clinton. And then they redefined it. Because everything is based upon, cost of living is all based on inflation. So if there's no inflation, you don't have to give people more. It's a sad thing. And it's all based upon, you know, it's not, and I'm not trying to say it's individuals that are causing this, you know, they're playing into the hand of, of the devil. The devil needs certain things to have happen. God has said they're going to happen. And so all the stuff that's going on 
is not people necessarily saying, well, I just feel like being mean, evil, and rotten. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy this. They unfortunately think that what they're doing is right. And that's the sad thing. We've got many legislations right now pending that are some of the worst things for democracy, but they all think they're the right thing to do because it'll keep them in power so that they can do what they think is right because they're smarter than all of us. Okay, and we see it all the time in the news and everything is the, this expert says, who says you're an expert? Well, they passed the doctorate test and, and some other doctorate that thinks the same way that they do said that you're an expert. And most of them don't know what they're talking about. It's really sad you know, that we go, and yet the world is based upon these experts. These experts say these things, and most of them you know, don't know what they're saying, say are duplicitous in their mind, and as you listen to them, they say one thing this moment, another thing the next moment, diametrically opposed, and yet they're the experts that have all the answers. And this is what's going on here. He says, you know, God says, I am the one that is going to be the uh, discipliner of all. Even though they seem to know what they want, they're deep in their thoughts, they're deep in their actions, and, you know, and this is going to be a problem. And this is going to happen in Israel when they fall. It says, verse 3, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit whoredom, and Israel is defiled. Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom, and Israel is another name for the northern kingdom. So he's saying, I know Israel, and I know Israel. <laughs> okay? This is Jewish poetry, parallelism. All right? And he says, you're not hid from me. O Ephraim, you commit whoredom, prostitution, adultery, fornication. And Israel is defiled, and this word for defiled is sexually impure. So, again, God is saying in, in, a, in a parallel thing, you're committing acts against me. God con considered Israel his bride, his people. And he says, they're practicing ad adultery to me. And he says they are unpure in what they're doing. And this is sad because so many Christians in our day and age are living in this kind of lifestyle. They don't know God's word. I'm going to say they're not Christians, but they're not living in God's word and challenging themselves to obey God. They do whatever they think is right. And we're actively having people taught that the Bible isn't true, that the Bible isn't true. Uh, don't think, you know, there's no such thing as sin. That's an old thing. We've evolved past sin. You know, in which case, why did Jesus die? Well, we don't believe in Jesus anyway, so it doesn't really matter. You know, and these are all the problems that come from this. If there is no sin, then Jesus did not have to die. And if you didn't believe he died anyway, it's not a problem. For us, we believe in sin. Adam and Eve fell, creating a sin problem for the world. Because of the sin problem in the world, Jesus had to come, live a perfect life, be the sacrifice on the cross to give, be our atonement and our propitiation for a sin. And it all flows into one. If we deny any part of that, then the rest of it becomes why. Why did it have to happen? If there was no Adam and Eve, then Jesus didn't have to die. And, certain, and Satan knows that. If he can get people to quit believing in original sin... He, de, he de gets rid of the need for Jesus. If we, don't have Je if we don't need Jesus, then there was no original sin, and it's kind of a vicious circle, and he tries to attack all of it, but he's really attacking beginnings, the beginning part.
really a problem. No, there's not really a problem. Look, everything's going good. And this is also why it's important to know history and see all the places where nations have grown and gotten prosperous, left God, and fallen. And if you follow all the great nations in the world on history, you see this, this exact thing. They get in power, they get themselves established. First step is they become lazy. The people, the nation becomes lazy. Next step, they look for things to keep themselves entertained. Next step, they start getting into promiscuity and adultery. Next step, they get into homosexuality and then they get into transgenderism and all the, all the other lifestyles that God says is wrong and God destroys them. What has America been doing? Since about the Roaring Twenties, we got into prosperity. Let's look, get lazy, don't have more children because the children are a pain in the neck and they keep me from having, having fun. I want to live for having fun and stop running out of fun and then start getting promiscuous. Then we get into the uh, homosexuality, which has been rampant for the last uh, couple decades. And then we end up with transgenderism and every other perverted activity that comes under the sun. Transgenderism and, and all the other perversions come rapid fire after, after homosexuality is accepted. It's happened every nation in the, in the world, every empire in the world has fallen under that plan. Rome got lazy and they stopped going to war. The, the heads stopped going to war and then they started getting into just entertain us, keep us entertained. And they had the Colosseums and, and the arts and then they went into adultery and fornication and then the homosexuality and then transgenderism, they were no more. Uh, happened in Assyria, happened in Babylon, happened in Egypt. You go through the history, this is the normal course for the destruction of an empire. And unless this nation repents, we cease to be an empire. I think we're beyond. I think we're beyond where we can repent because I think God is already putting the judgment in place. I'd love to see a re revival, but I really historically don't see it happening. And here he's telling the people, this is what you're doing. You're defiled. Verse 4, they will not frame their, their doings to turn to their God, for the spirit of whoredoms is in their midst, and they have not known the Lord. They will not repent. They will not turn to God because they are so stuck in their sin. And if you've ever witnessed to people, there are people that are so stuck in their sin that they just are not willing to turn to God or not wanting to turn to God or whatever their reason is, but they will not turn to God. They will tell you things like, well, I'm too bad. There's no way God wants me. Will I enjoy my sin? Uh, I'm having fun with my lifestyle. This is what they were saying. We're, we're, we're not going to turn to God. We're enjoying what's going on. Look at this. I, my, my fields are producing crops. My barns are filled. I got lots and lots of cattle. I'm having as much fun as I want to, and you want to put me under all these rules that say I can't do the things that I'm doing. And ultimately, that becomes the big problem. You will hear people going, well, I can't become a Christian. I, I can't give up my smoking or my, or my drugs or my, or my sleeping around or whatever it might be. And, you know, the question is, did, they want, have we ever told them to? You know, and my answer always is to them, I have not told you that you're going to do that. I'm just saying you need to repent from your sins and turn to God. He will change your heart. He will make you a new creation and change your heart. Now, I know if they truly turn to God, he will take those things out of their life. But I'm not asking them to change anything in their life because I don't want to see works be their, be their motivator. 
People think it's all about works and they do what they think is right. Well, God, I've got rid of all, I got rid of my alcohol, I got rid of my drugs, I'm a good person now. Well, do you know Jesus? Well, no, I got rid of all my sins, I, I, I kind of know God. You know, but do you really know him? Well, I got rid of all the, you know, look how good I am. You know, and the key is to know him, to turn in repentance. I don't know if it's a prevailing plot, but I run into it a lot. There's some people that just don't care about sin, period. There's others that know there's a problem and don't want to give it up. I mean, it goes the whole gambit. Each person's going to be different. But I hear lots of people going, well, I can't get saved because I'm, I can't give up my whatever. And, you know, and those are easy ones to go. I go, I'm not saying you have to give up anything. You're going to turn to God. Now, I know that if they truly turn to God, he's going to change their life. But not necessarily, you know, because if somebody thinks it's all about what they give up, then they're all about works. And they're going to get bound up in works. Well, and then when they, when they fail, not if they fail, but when they fail to keep their promise, they're going to say, God didn't, you know, I'm not good enough to be God's child. And so we've got to make sure they understand it's not about works. And... Yeah, the, the ceiling will fall down, the walls will fall down, uh, the church will, you know, I just can't give up my sin, I just can't give up this, this is more important to me than God, I can't give it up. And they're right, without God in their heart and their life, they can't give up their sin. They might be disciplined enough to look good, but they're not going to give it up. And again, I don't want them based on works, I want them based in grace. <laughs> God's grace who makes us a new creation and then puts a new heart in us that doesn't want to do the sins that I thought I couldn't give up. And the next thing you know, I no longer want to do them. This is the alcoholic. They truly get saved. It stops drinking immediately and never is tempted again because God has changed their life and heart. Before they made that commitment, they're going, there's no way I'd ever give this up. I like it too much or, I'm, or it, maybe they don't like it. Maybe they hate it. But it's got such a hold on their life that they are not able to give it up. And then God steps in when they turn their life over. And here's where they are in, in, their, in their sin lifestyle. Not willing to give up what God says is necessary. Oftentimes. Deep down, God says we have a conscience. We know right and wrong. Now, I might be have done something for so long that I have seared my conscience and no longer recognize that it's wrong. But, you know, even further down deep, we know, you know, people know. The people that are doing these wrong things way down deep, they may have pushed it so far deep that they're not hearing anymore. But when they're sitting alone at home at night after having done some really bad things, they get that twinges of guilt where the Holy Spirit is touching them and saying, you know what you did was wrong. You know what you did was wrong. Uh, again, they, they can push it down. They can sear it. But they know deep down that it's wrong. All of us do. All of us knew even, you know, no matter how bad our sins were, when we first started, we knew it was wrong. And at various times, we would get that twinges of, I need to stop this. It's not right. 
You know, it's not right that I'm going out and, and hurting people just for the fun of it. You know, and it, those twinges of guilt come in as the Holy Spirit touching them, uh, touching their conscience that God gives us. And God says that no man is without knowledge of their sin. So everybody who sins at some point will have their life touched and say, you're doing bad. And we can't even keep man's laws, much less God's laws. You know, we won't even keep our own laws. God, I will never, I will never do such and such. And then we end up doing it. And that was our own law for our life. And we violate it. You know, uh, it's kind of interesting that gangs and prisoners all have their own rules and they violate their own rules. Okay? And God says, you're without excuse, O man. Because he knows that we will fail even our own rules. So he goes, okay, here's my rule. You violated. You didn't want to accept my rule. Here's your group's rule. You did, you know, your government's rule. You didn't violate. Here's your group rule. You, you violated. Here, here were your rules for life. And here's where you violated. So God will go right down the list and say, you are completely without excuse to the people that are, are lost. And good news for us is that we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and God treats us as perfect because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we accept. And this is the beauty of this all. These people are not accepting that. They're not, they're not following God. He says in verse 5, And the pride of Israel doth testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity, and Judah shall fall with them. They've gone so far into sin that they were going to fall. They were going to be taken into captivity. And fall here means to teeter, totter, you know, uh, it really means to be drunken, <laughs> walking, you know, falling down and all of that. They're, they're swaying back and forth. They can't stand up straight, and they're going to fall. And he says, not only you, northern kingdom, but Judah is following in your footsteps. And we know that is, the northern kingdom fell first, and then Judah fell uh, after that. And this is what Hosea is saying. You're going to fall. You're going to fall, and it's going to happen. Verse 6 says, and this is an interesting one. They shall, they shall go with their flocks and their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. I really have pondered this scripture for about a week as I've looked at it. There's two basic interpretations to this. One is they have gone beyond God's redemption, and God's already put the put the things in place and it was not going to call them back. That's a viable one that, you know, as, as a possibility. The other one is the one that I tend to believe more. All of this was show. They took their flocks to God. They, they did tradition. God, you know, you say we need to give you a sacrifice. We're going to bring your sacrifice. But it was no repentance of their heart. And God says, I'm hiding from you. You're not, you're not coming with the right attitude. I am not showing my face to you. Either one of them is viable, and I can, understand, I can see both sides. Uh, but this is a hard scripture to look at. God says, I am not going to listen to your sacrifices that you bring to me. Uh, so was it because they had gone over the brink and God says no more? Or was it just because it was ritualism? And I think it was ritual. You know, God says offer sacrifices. We're going to bring sacrifices. We're hedging our bet. And we see people that do this all the time. Well, you know, I'm going to go to church once a year so I can tell God I've come to church. I'll go to church once a month so I can tell God I'm going to church. 
Everybody will think I'm doing good. You know, maybe, maybe I'm going to be really, really good. I'm going to go to church every week and put in my one hour with God every week. So I'm putting my money in my, in my righteous bank and God is going to accept my one hour a week of going to church. I'm not listening to anybody. I'm not listening to the pastor. I'm not participating in the songs, but I am giving him one hour a week where I go to church. And God says, and who cares? You know, going to church does not make us a Christian. Uh, coming to Bible study does not make us a Christian. It's making that heartfelt commitment to God. And that's the very important thing, and that's what he is looking for. And then he ends this particular section. They have dealt tra- They have dealt treacherously, deceitfully with God. And this is why I believe that first one was referring to them doing traditions. God, you said you want sacrifice? Here are some of my animals. I'm, I'm just going to make it look like I'm following you. I'm going to make everybody think that I'm, I'm one of yours, but I'm, not, I'm just dealing treacherous, treacherously with you. Uh, they have begotten strange children, illegitimate. Illegitimate is what that means. And again, we go back to the whoredoms and God's accusing them. They are creating children that don't know God, that are born of that, of that uh, idolatry. And this is a big problem as well. When God says, train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. These children were being raised up in idolatry. They did not know any better. They did not understand the things of God. And with each passing generation, they got further and further away from what God said. And we see this in families. If you have an unrighteous family, then that family gets worse and worse with each generation, with a rare exception of somebody getting saved within that family. But they tend, each generation tends to get worse than the previous generation. Whereas if you have a righteous family where the father's being the head of the household, the Bible's being lived out in that family, you see people that are, for lack of a better word, better and better each generation, more righteous, seeking God earlier in their life. And this is the beauty of it. You know, I trained up my children from early on and they all got saved at an early age. I'm looking forward to my grandchildren being saved at an even earlier age and being built up and edified in God so that that line keeps getting better and stronger for God. Now, every line can change. You know, there is no guarantee, but God says, you know, you guys are being treacherous. You have strange children. Now shall the new, or the, the, the moon, a month or the new month, the new moon celebration, devour your portion. He says, in other words, you're going to come with this offering, the new moon offering, the new month offering. They had to offer, him, offer an offering every new month. And he says, I'm just, it's going to be devoured. It's for nothing. You're coming with your sacrifice and it doesn't mean a thing. What a sad place for people to be doing what they think is right for God and not have it recognized by God at all because they're just living traditions. They're just living how they think God wants them to live. They're, they're, they're doing works. And good works never please God. And this is something critical for us to always remember. Good works are not going to make God happy. They're not going to satisfy him because it's all about what he has done and turning to him. All right, starting at verse 8. And the trumpet in Ramoth, cry aloud in Beth Avin, after you, O Benjamin, 
Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke among the tribes of Israel. I have made known that which shall surely be. The princes of Judah were like them that removed the bound. Therefore I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked after the commandment. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth and unto the house of Judah as a rottenness. When Ephraim saw the sickness and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to, the, to Assyrians and sent to the king Jerob. Yet he could he not heal them nor cure, cure them of their wound. For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue him. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction. They will seek me early. All right, so here's God really declaring the judgment upon them. Blow the coronet or the shofar, the ram's horn actually. The, blow the shofar in Gibeah. Gibeah is the birthplace of Saul, King Saul. So it's a special place to the, to the nation. And the trumpet in Ramoth, and Ramoth is an area about five miles uh, uh, outside of Jerusalem, very important area. It's near, actually very near Bethlehem and that whole area. Uh, and it says, and cry aloud. This is a battle cry at Beth Aven. And this is a, a city that is near Bethel, but it literally means city of vanity, emptiness. So God is saying, okay, you, all these special places, all these wonderful little places, go ahead and cry out, cry out for me. You know, do a battle cry. Uh, they're not seeking God. Again, they're doing this out of obligation, out of desperation maybe, without believing in, in God at this point. And they're saying, do all of this. It says, the princes uh, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Israel shall be made empty during the day of rebuke or when Assyria came in and conquered them. They were desolated. Their people were moved out of the area. And among the tribes of Israel, which I have known, and he says, among the tribes of Israel have I made known that which shall surely be. When God makes a prophecy, it will come true. And God's prophecies are really precise prophecies. It's not like the prophecy of the fortunes you read in the newspaper that, you know, a tall, dark stranger is going to come and sweep you off your feet. You know, and then you get run over by, by a dark person that you don't, you know, a dark-haired person you don't know. Uh, they swept you off your feet. Not quite the way you meant it, but, you know, uh, you know but it could be read just about any way. God said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Out of all the towns in Israel, he said Bethlehem. Then he said he will come out of Egypt. Now people were reading that. How can he come out of Egypt and be born in Bethlehem? Well, God sent him to Egypt to be brought in from Bethlehem. We, we saw all the things come true. He would be called a Nazarene. Well, hold it. He was born in Bethlehem. Why is he going to be called a Nazarene? Well, because he grew up most of his life in Nazareth. We see, looking back, how God fulfilled exactly all of the prophecies. 
And we see all through scripture how he predicted things and made them happen. And so then when we look at the future things that are yet to come, we're going, God may not understand exactly how this is going to happen, but I do know you're going to make it happen. Uh, if you even have studied eschatology, the end times at all, it's been very interesting to look at the things, how they've morphed over the years. Uh, the Bible tells us that the two prophets that would be preaching in the, at the temple would be killed and the whole world would be watching them. And when they were killed, the, the world would celebrate and send cards and gifts to each other that day. You know, for decades and centuries, people go, well, there's no way that that can be real. and There's no way everybody in the world can watch them. There's no way that in one day you could celebrate and give gifts. What do we know today? They would have a satellite television channel on them. The prophet channel, watch the prophets. And then when they died, we can deliver gifts in one day, anywhere in the world in today. We can deliver them within one hour. We can send cards to people by the internet and create cards and even do, do mailed cards and stuff that are mailed from that town to it. See the difference on it that a millennia makes when we look at the prophecies now? We're going, uh-oh, you know, this, isn't, this isn't symbolic. This isn't far-fetched. We go, I see how that can be done. We see how we can have a world that cannot buy or trade without the mark of the beast because we are so wrapped into computerization and people, most people do not handle money in our day and age. They all use debit cards or credit cards. Very few people even write checks anymore. So, and each generation is less and less people. And the more that this is going on, the easier it is for government to say, okay, we're, we're in control of all this now. You'd have to do things our way. And we're starting to look and say, God, you are pretty accurate. We didn't understand it 50 years ago. We didn't understand it 100 years ago. We didn't understand it 1,000 years ago. But we're starting to begin to understand it in today's world. And it's very interesting how accurate God is. And you know, when you look at it and go, well, there's no way that John the Baptist could have predicted what we're seeing now. The whole world's being able to watch these guys and the whole world celebrating with them without God showing it to him. Because there's no way he would have just dreamed that up. It would have not made any sense. And yet, it's in the scriptures. And we're watching our economy getting ready to go into hyperinflation. And it's very soon. It's very soon that we're going to go into hyperinflation, probably worldwide, and bring about the end days. It's, it's an exciting time to be alive and a scary time to be alive. Uh, but outside of being alive when Jesus was walking on this earth, this is probably the most exciting time to to be alive and watch what's happening to this world just as God said it would happen. And so we want to be prepared. Um, o princes of Judah, we're like them that removed the bound, therefore I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. Bound here literally means boundary markers. There's two different ways that this could be taken. One would be that they were literally moving the boundary markers of people's land. All right, uh, it is possible, or it could be saying that leaders are removing the boundaries God has placed on us, the commandments, and saying, we're loosing you from God's boundaries. We're hearing that term all the time. We're being loosed from the boundaries of the past. We can do what we want. We can be who we want to be. You know, 
You don't have to be male or female. You can be one of the 500 different categories of, of gender. Uh, you know, just take your pick. Which one do you want to be? Yeah, I haven't got a clue how many, how they got that high, but everybody's been reporting that many. Uh, I know that I've heard, I've heard of about 50 different genders out there now, and they keep coming up with new ones because they don't want people to be bound up by rules. Uh, and this is happening all over the place where people are saying, I want to do what I want to do. We have a very narcissistic generation where people do what's best for them or whatever is good for them to lift them up. And so we're there. We're seeing these boundaries being removed and saying, your leaders are removing these boundaries. Your, your, your uh, religious, the princes in this case, but your religious leaders are lifting up the boundaries. They're not keeping them in place. And we're watching our country and the rest of the world, quite bluntly, lifting up the boundaries, trying to say God's rules are not that important. Now, they're not saying God's rules. They're going those old rules. You know, and we hear it all the time. You haven't evolved. You know, we, we've moved past those old-fashioned biblical rules. You need to get up with us, get, get with the times, get with it. You know, whatever term you want to use, and they're going, you need to get where we are. Forget that old stuff that you say came from God. Get freedom and be, be yourself. You know, really started for us in America in the 60s. You know, just be yourself. Get to know who you are and throw off the bounds. It's taken a few years for it to happen, but we're, we're there. About 60 years later, our country is very much in throw off all the, the bounds of, of repression, they call it. I call it following God's laws and his desires for our life. Uh, you follow his rules and his desires, you have freedom, you have joy, you have peace. You go into the other way and you have depression, you have pain and suffering for not doing things God's way. And because we are built to be obedient to God. Our whole spirit and soul is built to be obedient to God. And when we're disobedient to God, we cannot have complete ultimate joy. We might have joy for a season, we might think it's okay for a short while, but everything in us screams, this is not right. This is not right. And then it makes them miserable. And then it gets them into places where they commit suicide and, and because they're so depressed. And then because they're committing suicide, they blame us for the rules that we're putting on them because we represent God's rules to them that they know they're supposed to live by, so they blame us. And that we become the problem in their sight. It's a real vicious circle of blame and this circle has come all the way from the very beginning Adam where are you well I'm here in the garden well, I'm hiding why are you hiding because I sinned because I ate the fruit well why did you eat the fruit well God the, the woman you gave me gave it to me so you know Adam points both directions in, in the blame game Eve says well the serpent did it you know blame game has happened forever and it still happens today you know when I feel guilty I blame others without going to God. When I'm following God, I come into repentance. I repent of my sin, ask God to help cleanse it. He cleanses it and makes me, gives me the life that goes along with it. As long as I want to keep blaming others, I will never live in the victory of God. And this is for all of us. We cannot live in the blame, the blaming of others. Well, God, if you just knew what it was like in this, this civilization, you would know that I just can't help myself. Nobody, nobody talks about you. Everybody's doing what they want. Everybody's doing their own thing. I've got to do it or I'm going to be too square and I'm not going to be, 
I'm not going to be accepted by anybody. And God said, I want you to be my child. And it's hard. And the more humble we are, the more repentant we are, the better off we're going to be as we abide under God's rules. Without his rules, we're going to suffer. We're going to be always blaming others. And the problem is that we blame others. We don't recognize that I cause my own problems. I'm going to look at, well, God, if it just with my parents hadn't done this, my, my siblings hadn't done this, this teacher hadn't done this, uh, this coach hadn't done this to me, I would have been okay. You know, it was all of these people that conspired against me. You know, and we hear it all the time. All the time where people blame others instead of just humbling themselves and saying, God, I'm a sinner. And turning to him. And that's what he's being, they're challenging them to do. Turn to God. And uh, verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked after the commandment. Not God's commandments, the commandments of the world. This is a negative word in the Hebrew. All right? Doing things the world's way. Well, I'm just following the crowd. Jesus said, Wide is the gate, wide is the way, and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate, and narrow the way that leads to salvation. If we follow the world, we head into destruction. Now, the funny thing about that is the wide gate is just like the chutes that they, they, they uh, round up uh, wild cattle with that have been on there. They just drive them toward a very wide opening. It gets narrower and narrower and narrower and leads to the chute that goes into the truck that takes them off to the slaughterhouse. The wide gate gets narrower and narrower until it ends at destruction. The narrow gate leads to freedom and liberty. We enter in at the narrow gate and it opens up into a wide pasture where we get to enjoy God's life. We go through the narrow gate very tight one way and enter into open freedom or we go in the wide gate and end up at destruction and here he's saying the same thing you know Ephraim willingly followed the way of the world Eve willingly followed the serpent's temptation and Adam willingly gave in to the temptation from his wife and what was even worse when you read it very carefully he was with Eve as Eve was being deceived by the serpent and didn't stop her from listening to the serpent or reaching out for the, for the, from the fruit. And then ate the fruit with her. So he is definitely the worst of the two. Because he was, he was the head of the family. He was supposed to make sure that this was not going to happen. And he did not. take. And he took it very willingly. Eve was tricked and he took it willingly. And so this is what's going on. Ephraim willingly is going after that. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth and unto the house of Judah as rottenness. This is kind of interesting. To the, to the northern kingdom, he'd be like a moth. What do moths do? Well, outside of being a nuisance as they fly around you, they like to eat the cloth. They like to eat the leather. They eat the, all the linens. And he says, I'm going to be like that. I'm going to consume all the, all the fine stuff that they have. And usually the moths will go for the most expensive linens first. At least that's what I'm told. They, they'll eat just about anything. Uh, but they'll eat the holes in it. They'll destroy it. God says, we're going to put holes in your life. And he goes, and to Judah, I will be rottenness. 
a mold, a, a disease. And so is, and then you think about that, that starts a little bit slower. How long does something have mold in it before you really recognize that it is rotted away? You go step out on your porch where the, the wood is rotted away over time and it looked real good and it was rotten underneath and the next thing you know you're, you went through the, through the porch. <laughs> All right, This is what he's saying. I'm going to be these slow uh, diseases to these two countries. And it, it was slow. God says, you think you're doing really well, O Israel? I'm going to be the moth. I'm going to eat up all your wealth. It's very slowly, but I'm going to be consuming your wealth. And at some time, you're going to recognize that all the clothes in your closet have holes in them. <laughs> all right? Uh, you're going to realize that all this wealth that you thought you've been getting is just nothing but full of holes. And there's nothing there to depend on. And you, O Judah, you're rotting from the inside. And you're going to fall apart in ways that you don't even recognize. And this is God saying, I'm going to be these things to you. You don't want to follow me? I'm going to step in. God disciplines his children, and even those that he says should be his children, he's going to discipline. This is what it is. God owns everything. We recognize that he's our father and our, and ours, so he disciplines us a lot, but he does not let the world just go straight out and keep going good from, from the disobedience. He will step in and say, okay, here's the consequence for your, your disobedience. Sin always has consequence. And this is the thing that we have to remember. There's consequences for every action that we do, good or bad, and God says sin always has a consequence that people have to pay. Now, here he says he's actively doing it, but it's also one of those things that the laws of sowing and reaping are put into this world and will happen. People will reap the results of what they do. It may take decades. It may take many, many years for them to reap what they sowed, but they will reap what they sow. At the very worst, they'll, they'll reap it at the white throne judgment. But almost everybody you meet, if you really get them to talk to you, They'll tell you how miserable they are. And you don't even have to get them to talk to you in many cases. All you have to do is read all the papers about how these guys get into alcoholism and drug abuse. And, you know, you'll look up there and some famous person is checking themselves into a rehab center so that they can get out of the alcohol and drugs that have gotten older in their life. And you would think, well, how, what do they have to be depressed about? What do they have to be escaping from? They've got all the money they need. They've got that huge mansion. They've got the cars. They've got the servants. And they're depressed and stuck in alcoholism and, and drug addiction or any other numbers of sins. <laughs> and you're going, they've got everything I think I want. Well, because all those things do not bring happiness. God says, you're still not living the way I want you to. You're going to reap. And so these people are reaping even when we don't think they are. We're looking at them saying, oh God, they've got everything. How can, how can they have all these blessings <laughs> and they're not following you? And God says, you need to know a little deeper than, I, than you think you know. You need to know their heart. You need to know where they're at completely, not just what you think you see. And then ultimately, at the White Throne Judgment, they will receive their judgment if they don't come to God. And here God is saying, I'm going to be that moth. I'm going to be the rottenness in their life. I'm going to make sure that it grows and makes them disconcerted and want something other than what they have.
verse uh, 13, And when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, even then went Ephraim to the Syrian to send to the king Jerib, yet he could not heal nor cure you of your wound. So it goes, you went to the world. You went to the way of the world. Assyria represents the world in this case. All right. Earlier than that, it was always Egypt. Israel, you went to Egypt. You went to e Egypt for help. You went to, the, you, you wanted to see your, your, your work there. This is the picture of, us, instead of turning to God, turning to the ways of the world. Okay, world, I need your help. <laughs> you, you seem to have everything all put together, and they don't, but you, know, you, you seem to, I'm going to follow your way of doing things. And there's no cure in it. No rescue in it. In this case, Israel, the northern kingdom, actually did go to, to Assyria, paid them lots of money to help them, and then Assyria turned on them and attacked them so that they did not, did not get what they paid for. Uh, they tried to pay for help, and they got attacked. And uh, unfortunately, that is what the world does to us. We give everything over to the world, and then we get beat up by the world, thinking that, well, the world is going to save us. All I've got to do is do things the way of the world. And then we get beat up by the world and get worse in a worse condition than before. This is what they're talking about here. You know, you went to Assyria and they cannot cure you. Because what is the, what is the ailment? Sin. Going to sin to try to heal my sin is not going to work. All right? It'll just give me new sins to have to add to my old sin. And then my new estate is worse. <laughs> now I had my original sin, now I have a new sin, and now I'm guilty for the new sin as well as the old sin. And then I go back to the world to find some new sin beyond that one to add to my guilt, and it just keeps compounding. And this is the problem with turning to the world for answers. The world does not have... But the sad thing is the world says that they have answers. You know, we have the psychologist telling us that if we just figure out why we are what we are, Go back and find out what your parents did to you and what these other people did to you. Then you can address what they did to you and get better. What ends up happening is we get mad and angry at the people that did the things that supposedly changed and ruined our life. And we never get freedom from what, what we think they did. And it's not even their fault because they're sinners and we're sinners. And we're just combining all the sin together and making life miserable. Which is why it's so important to come to God, repent, have him take our heart of stone out of us, put a heart of flesh into us, make us a new creation that seeks after him and get into his word and start humbling ourselves and being obedient to God. And that obedience to God gives us the victory that we're seeking because God fills that emptiness in us and says, I'm the answer and I'm the only one that can fill that infinite hole because he's an infinite God. And without him, we can't fill it. It doesn't matter what we try to fill an infinite hole up. There's not enough of anything to fill an infinite hole. God has created a God, Pascal said God has created a God-shaped vacuum in each person and only God can fill that vacuum because he's the only one that's big enough to do so. And if we try to fill it up with anything else, we're empty and miserable and not going to be happy because there's still an empty hole. Solomon found this out with all the stuff that he did in his lifetime, how rich he got, how, how many women he had, how much accolades he had, how much wisdom he had, and he didn't recognize God. And he said it in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And he listed everything.
there was vanity in that book. And then he came to the conclusion that we have to obey God. God is the only one that will fill the emptiness of our life. Most people don't get to that point. And yet God will say, I'm going to let you keep going down. I'm going to let you go down. I'm going to let you feel miserable. I'm not giving you any freedom or relief until you turn to me. And, this, and then when people get into this, uh, let's read the end because this is really what it comes down to. Uh, verse 14, For I will, I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and unto the young lion unto the house of Judah. Even I will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue him. So we keep getting worse and worse. And God says, I will be the lion tearing you. I will be making things worse. And then the last verse says, I will go and return to my place. I'm leaving. I'm tired of dealing with you. <laughs> Till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction, affliction then uh, in their affliction, they will seek me early. God says, I am leaving until they decide to truly seek after me. Not with the, the show and the works and the traditions, but when they finally get to the place and say, God, I am without hope. I repent of my sins. I turn to you. And then God says, all right, this is my son. The prodigal son returning to his father. Father, I have sinned against you and, and God and God in you, he says, welcome back, son. Because he had finally been broken of his pride and was turning and recognizing, God, I'm the problem. And when people get to the place where they recognize they're the problem, <laughs> instead of blaming others and blaming circumstances and blaming God, you know, it's amazing how many people don't believe in God, but it's God's fault that everything's going bad in their life. You know, God, you did this. You know, I thought you didn't believe in it. Well, I don't, but God's doing this. Uh, and they don't ever recognize that they're their own enemy. They're the one driving themselves down the wrong path. And then we have to get to the place where we recognize in the affliction, God, I'm rebelling against you. I need you. I cannot fix myself. I need you to fix me. And at that point, Jesus says, here is your gift. I am your Savior Here's my righteousness. I'm going to give you the joy that passes understanding. I'm going to put the Holy Spirit in you. I'm going to come and live in you. You're going to have plenty of strength to get by. And we're going to give you joy. We're going to give you peace. And you're going to be doing much better. Now, perfect? Nope. <laughs> we're still going to have trials. We're still going to have problems. But God now lives in me. He gives me the strength to get it back because he is the God of the universe, the infinite strength who can now get me through anything that I go through. And... All of my problems are designed for just this purpose, to trust him more, to watch what he is going to do in my life. It is funny, if you look back over your life, what has God doing in your life? You know, and we as Christians tend to look at it, God, you're just blessing me, you're blessing me, you're blessing me. I do. You know, and I told somebody, I've got no problems in my life, and they're going, what about this, 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 this? I'm going, those aren't problems. God's in charge of those. And I really do tend to be like Paul. Learn to be content, and God is in control. You know, and Paul listed off all the things that, you know, his light afflictions, you know, uh, being beaten by the Jews uh, three times, being shipwrecked, finding himself in the wa you know, water for three days, uh, you know, and two nights, uh, being chased out of all these towns, you know, all the problems that he goes, and he goes, these are just light. These are nothing, because he's looking at heaven. 
He's looking at the glory that God has promised him. And our goal, if we truly believe that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, then it doesn't matter what happens to me. God's got a plan in it. And as long as I hold on to that verse, no matter what happens to me, I look and say, God, I don't understand it. I don't know the plan, but you have got a plan. I am just trusting in your plan. And this is so important. You know, trust, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. If you don't like Romans 28, 8, 20, uh, 8, go, to, go to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. God's got a plan. It's a perfect plan. We may not understand it. He says, trust in my plan. We can go all through the scriptures and show all these verses and say, God says, I am sovereign, just trust in me. You know, pick your own verse. It doesn't matter to me which one verse you pick. Those are some of my favorites. Uh, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And I, life that I now live, I live according to the faith of Christ Jesus. I am dead. It's all about him. Whatever verse you want to pick for, for your strength verse. When things are going bad for me, I remember eight, Romans 8.28. And say, God, may not understand what you're doing, but you have promised that good will come of it. You want to kill me and take me home quicker? That's fine by me. Good will come out of it. You want me to suffer and be an example to others by suffering for you? Then I will suffer for you. And let others see my faithfulness in suffering for you. Now, why is some of these things happen to us? I don't know. Now, I don't know. One very important thing, and I say this all the time, do not put the word my good in, in that verse. I listened to a guy today, and he, he misquoted that verse. Now, he's arrogant enough that I didn't tell him he misquoted. He goes, all things, God's got a plan for my good. And I'm going, no, he's got a plan for good, not your good. Now, ultimately, it is for our good. We will be rewarded in heaven. All right? So eventually, yes, it's for my good, long, long term. But on this world, it is for good. Somebody is going to be blessed by whatever I go through as they look at my life and watch me stay faithful to God. Oftentimes, I will get blessed on this world, but not always. Maybe it's just in the future. I learned this the hard way when I had a gout attack for about six months. I was on crutches. A year later, somebody came to me and goes, I was so encouraged watching you go through pain for that period of time, and it made me trust God more. That gout was not for my good. Definitely not for my good. I was in pain. I was in tears most of the time. I couldn't sleep because my gout attack was that bad. I was on crutches for six months. It was not for my good. There was nothing good about it for me. But that person watched me continually serve God and do the things in the church and, and get by, and they go, your example encouraged me. Fox's Book of Martyrs is full of Christians that have given up their life for martyrdom. We still remember them to this day. They're still reaching out and touching people through their death. Now, their death actually took them to heaven sooner, so it was good. But the suffering of it, they did with so much grace that people looked at them and said, they've got something. And that is what we want to be able to look to God and say, God, I just trust you. I want to stay faithful to you because you have got a plan. I may not understand your plan, but you have a plan. You turn the hearts of people. We are looking in the near future of probably suffering for being Christians. We need to get deep in our mind, all things work together for good, that God's ways are not our ways. Whatever verse you want to use, Isaiah, you know, his ways are higher than my ways. You know, 
whatever verse you want to use, God's got a plan, and we are going to suffer right here in America. Most of the world already suffers for Christ. We're going to start suffering in America, and we need to start getting our mindset that we are going to follow God no matter what, that he has got a plan for us. And the handwriting's on the wall. I don't know if it's going to start next year, 20 years from now, but the handwriting is on the wall that we are facing persecution. I think it's sooner than later. And we need to be ready. There will be a time when we cannot meet in this church building and teach the word of God. We will have to meet in somebody's house somewhere or out in a field or someplace you know, away from what's going on to be able to teach God's word. And it's not that far down the road. We saw it during the pandemic where they tried to church, close down churches. And here in America, there was a lot of rebellion against that and a lot of pastors kept meeting and they've won the Supreme Court cases against them, against the states. But it's going to turn around very soon. We're already seeing the, the attacks and they're being repulsed. But they're going to learn how to make the attack uh, stand. And they're going to keep doing it and they're going to keep coming after us. And eventually there will be persecution by the government on Christians in this country. And I don't think it's very far away. You know, it's very soon and we need to be prepared. Now much of the world is saying it's about time. But I talked to many Christians from behind the Iron Curtain and you know what? It was funny because America was praying for them to be free of the tyranny. They were praying for us to be persecuted. Because they read where Jesus said, all those that follow me will be persecuted. And they're looking at America and go, what's wrong with those Christians over there? They must not be following God. We're being persecuted just like Jesus said. They're not. So they literally were praying for us in America to start getting persecuted. Because they could not understand why we were not being persecuted. And honestly, most of it was because we're too wimpy to stand up for God in the first place. So we never got persecuted. The church has fallen from its strong position and become weaker and weaker. And it's going to be harder for us to stand for God because of the rest of the church not standing for God. And we need to be very careful. What are we going to do? Are we going to stand on the gospel of Christ? Are we going to stand on the ways of God? Or are we going to go the way of the world? And the way of the world leads to destruction. And we need to be making our choice now. I'm going to stand for God no matter what happens. No matter what. And it's easy to make now. It'll be hard to stand in it, but if we don't make our decision now, we won't stand. If we don't make our stand, God, I need you to help me have the strength to stand when the trials come. When the trials hit, we're going to go, how did I get into this position? It's like the young person who's going on a date and haven't set boundaries for their date, and they go up to Lover's Point and end up being in the back seat doing things they're not supposed to do because they didn't set their boundaries ahead of time. We need to be setting our boundaries ahead of time before the persecution starts. It's coming. It's not a question of if it comes. It is coming. The, the question is when. And it will be soon. And I really think it's going to be soon. I th I'm virtually sure that it even will be in our lifetime for everybody in this room. So we are sitting there right on the cusp of what's going on. And we need to be ready to say, God, I'm going to obey you and seek you no matter what and it may mean that we lose our life it may mean that we get put into prison it may mean that we lose our freedoms are we ready to stand for God and say God I'm going to follow you or are we going to follow after the world we're going to go seek after Assyria and say help me and 
the world always turns on you. Even when it does help you for a short period of time, the world's ways turn on you and you're, and you're worse off than you were before. Because you, pay, you paid them a high price to come and help you, and so you lost that part and you are in a bad place. All right. Lord, we ask you to just bless us as we go on. Lord, teach us to seek you in all that we do and turn to you to face you. Lord, our country is in dire straits without a revival. We pray for a revival, but Lord, strengthen us to give us the ability to stand for you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.